As I was looking into this passage this week, I, I remembered a, a, little, a little fact, a little conversational anecdote that I like to share often. Uh, that, that married couples, the longer they're married, they begin to look more like each other. Have you ever noticed that? I heard, I heard that somewhere, and I didn't realize if it was true or not, so I looked into it a little bit to see, see what that was all about as I was prepping for this sermon today. Um, and I looked into it. Robert Zonjic, I think is how you pronounce his name, Zojan, maybe, of the University of Michigan did a study that on, on whether couples actually begin to look more like each other as they're married. So what he did was he took individual pictures of a couple when they're newlyweds, and then he took individual couple, pictures of that couple after 25 years of marriage, and he brought random strangers in to see if they could match the people who they thought were in a couple together. And they found that after the, the, the difference between the two groups, that, it, that there was an exponential increase in the ability to be able to pair couples who had been together after 25 years. And that, that even, the chances even went up if the couples described their marriages, happy marriages. And so Zanjik goes into the study to see why that might be. Um, one of the reasons is because they ate the same thing. As you share meals together, you're going to have the same fat deposits, or lack thereof, on your body, your face. So your face is going to have the same composure of those, the, your meals over those 25 years. You also have this empathy towards your spouse, that you begin to adapt the same expressions that they have. You start smiling like they do, or just making the same facial expressions. And as you do that, you get the same crow's feet, you get the same, you know, furrowed brows or smile lines, your muscle structure even, as you smile in a similar way, begins to be built in the same way. So your face is literally being made to look more like your spouse does, because of this empathy you have with your spouse in, in these facial expressions. I thought that was really interesting. The reason I thought about that, too, is as we're looking at Galatians 2, you know, Paul is defending his gospel. He's just if you were here last week, you remember that Pastor Larry was talking about how um, he heard the gospel from Jesus himself. And he's defending that he did not get it from any man. And he begins to talk about the church in Jerusalem. Well, we just read, you know, Aubrey, thanks for reading. I hate reading uh, aloud. It's, I stumble over my words all the time, so I appreciate that. But we just read in Galatians 2 how he then meets up with the church in Jerusalem, and they all have a similar gospel, and they're unified in that. And then he goes into the story about how he approaches Peter, and he confronts him, and one line jumped out to me at the end of this confrontation of Peter. He says, but when I saw that their conduct, the Jews that had separated from the Gentiles, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. He, he saw that their conduct wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel. And then I looked further on in Galatians, that in Galatians 3, verse 3, it says, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Implying that if we began by the Spirit, we continue by the Spirit. The same gospel that saves us on day one is the one that continues to perfect us. And so Paul is validating his gospel, but he's also pointing forward to the fact that, that Christ is not just for day one of your salvation. He's not just a part of your, your life. He is the gospel is the entirety of our Christian walk. And he's validating the gospel here by showing how his actions are in 
are in step with the gospel in a lot of different ways. So as we jump into Galatians 2, I want us to think about how as we look at Christ, like Paul was looking at Christ and began to look more like Christ, his actions displayed that he was in step with the gospel, I want us to think how we might begin to look more like Christ as we continue to look at him, as we continue to spend time with him. So we're in Galatians 2, 1 through 14. If you're not there already, turn there. This is the part where I normally read, but I just don't read this one. So uh, Galatians 2, um, I'll walk through some of the, the, the context of this passage itself. So Paul is going to the church in Jerusalem, and he's, as it says in verse 2, that he's making sure that he had not run in vain. So we know that running in vain doesn't mean that he's trying to see if his gospel is true or not. What's the point of everything Larry just shared last week? That he knew that his gospel was true because, as, it, as they say, it came from the horse's mouth. It came straight from Jesus himself, like it, there, it, right from the source. He heard it straight from Jesus. That's how he knows his gospel is true. So he's going to present the gospel. He, he was going to present to set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running in vain or had not run in vain. So running in vain, what does he mean by that? He wants to make sure they're sharing the same gospel, that they're unified together. Because can you imagine Paul's life? I mean, he's going from churchless place to churchless place to churchless place to confronting these pagans who don't know God, and he's confronting Jews who are, are lost and in slavery to the law, and he's constantly in confrontation with the world. So he's hoping to go back to this church that's already established in Jerusalem and find that there's a similar gospel, and to find unity in that. And it, could you imagine how disheartening it would be if he was to go back to Jerusalem and find, no, they're adding something to the gospel that's that's, that Jesus doesn't have there. That he, so he was going to make sure that he had not run in vain. But then he talks about Titus, who was with him, was not forced to be circumcised. That seems like kind of a random fact to throw in right after he had... They, they, you know, we, I went there to make sure that the gospel was the same, and they didn't even make Titus get circumcised. That seems like kind of a random fact to throw in afterwards, but if you understand the context of what's happening in the book of Galatians, it's very clear what he's trying to say is that these Jewish brothers in the most Jewish city in the world, Jerusalem, in their church, they weren't forcing, even though they were racially Jews, they were not forcing Judaism on believers in order to have unity there. That that wasn't the, the important thing. And if you understand what's happening in the church in Galatia, that very thing is happening. Jewish non-believers or false believers have slipped in shared a false gospel that you need to, to accept both Christ and Judaism. And the beginning of accepting Judaism is being circumcised. So it's very significant that he says that they were not forced to be circumcised. In fact, on the contrary, he talks, he says that there was false brothers who slipped in to try to do the same thing that was happening in the church in Galatia. He talks about it like espionage, like, um, like a double agent almost, where they come in to spy out their freedom and to enslave them once again. That they're trying to corrupt the gospel in the church. And he says, we withstood that. When we were in that spot, we withstood that so that the gospel might be preserved for you. We, we stood up in the 
same situation so that you might have the true, true gospel. And could you imagine how frustrating it would be then for them to look at the Galatian church and see that the same thing happened to them and they are accepting it. They're morphing into this false gospel that they had to accept Judaism in order to follow Christ. But they, in the church, when he was with the brothers in Jerusalem, they stood up with him. And then they give him the right hand of fellowship. They show that there's this common mission between the two of them, and they, they're, they're both planting churches, and people who don't know Christ, so if, and people groups that don't know Christ, Paul to the Gentiles, and them to the brothers, the, the Jewish um, non-believers. So that's the first story. The second story we have here is his confrontation of Jesus with Peter in Antioch. Peter comes up to Antioch to check out the church and to see that he's eating with the, the believers there. He's sharing meals with them until these brothers come up from Jerusalem and then he comes back. And he confronts Peter there because his actions, like we said before, weren't in step with the gospel. That he was living by Jewish kosher purity laws um, when the Jews and Gentiles did not eat together. And that that's pretty significant because that would have been implying that they needed to follow kosher purity in order to be able to be to, to eat with one another. And think about the meal we just shared together the bread and the cup. If Peter wasn't eating normal meals with the Jewish brothers or with the Gentile brothers and sisters, do you think he was eating the bread and the cup with them? I mean, that's pretty serious disunity not to be sharing meals together. So there's, there's a reason why Paul shares that story that he had to be confronted face to face. It was a big deal he wasn't eating with them. Not only that, but if you look at chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I uh, trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul throws this story in there to show that Peter, this one, one that would seem influential, as he mentions a few times throughout this passage, he's definitely one that would seem influential. Peter was one of the inner three, as we call them. You know, Peter, James, and John, those that had the closest earthly relationship with Jesus. He, he, it doesn't matter if he seems to be influential. He confronts it to his face because he's not trying to seek the approval of man. He's trying, he's trying to uphold the gospel. So now that we understand uh, some of the cultural and uh, nuances of what's going on in the passage, let's look at the implications of Paul's actions, how he, his, his life is shaped by the gospel, how he validates the gospel with his life. I think, first of all, we can see that in his unity with the brothers Jerusalem, we can see the gospel pretty clearly proclaimed. To Paul, it would be as if he ran in vain if their gospel needs defense. That's how important the unity is between them. That they have to be unified on the truth of the gospel. I think in our culture, unity gets twisted a little bit. Larry talked about this last week. That when we, when we think about unity in our culture, you know, we've got a lot of things in our culture that disunify us, right? Whether it's social issues, or politics for sure, or, um, you know, race, whatever it may be that would separate us, that 
that those things, those people have seen the, the divisions that are happening in our culture, and they have a cry for unity. But what they mean by unity is, okay, you know what? We believe different things. Sure, that's fine. But let's not fight about it. Let's not talk about it. Have you ever heard the, the old stigma of like when you're getting together at a, at a family get-together? You don't talk religion or politics because you don't want to stir things up. You, you want to be unified. Unity in our culture, as it's being pushed by like the most social justice, social activists out there, is a unity of okay. I don't touch what you say, and you don't touch what I say. We don't we don't stir up anything. We just get along with each other. That's what unity looks like. Paul's unity is different than that. Biblical unity is different than that. Our unity is on a, on something. It's substantive. It's real. It's actual. Our unity is in the gospel. And if their gospels were different, they don't have unity. That's how important it is that they're unified on the truth. So they go together and he presents his gospel to them and makes sure that they believe the same thing from Christ, that same unquestionable truth that he has so that they can be united. It's not unity for us as a church if we are merely cordial with one another, but we believe something else. If we believe something different in the gospel and we're just nice to each other, that's not unity. I was thinking about that. Or, or if we serve together, if we go and serve and do good things together, but we're not unified in the gospel, we don't have unity. There was a, a winter serve trip we took last year with the youth, and we go to a homeless shelter. And we're scheduled to share um, food at the homeless shelter in Chicago there. The purpose of those trips, I always thought, was so that we could see believers in, in other contexts using their gifts to, to share Christ with other people. That, that would be something that would be contagious to the, the youth uh, of our church. So that's the reason why we're going. And then this group of Buddhists come. And they have super good food. And they have these t-shirts and everything. And we end up scooping this food that they've brought in, and we're standing there, and it's the Buddhists sharing this stuff. It may seem good, right? We're, we're giving people who don't have food, food. We're giving them a warm place. We're talking with them. We're being nice and kind to them. But we're not unified. And the reason we were there isn't just to put food in the belly. We're there to show Christ and to see Christ shown. And his glory. We don't do just good things for the sake of doing good things. We do it for the glory of God. To, to show the love of Christ that we've been shown. It's not just good things. And if we're unified together just doing good things. Without being unified on the truth of the gospel. We don't have unity. That's why we spend so much time. And we dedicate so much energy. And so much, so much of our, 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 our time together as a, a body is focused around the study of the Word of God in our life ed classes, in our, in our children's thing. You know, we're going through the gospel project so that all the kids can see every passage and how it points to Christ. And in the youth Sunday school, we're going and we go through every passage before whoever preaches it so we can see how that passage points to Christ. We can prepare our, the hearts of the, the teens to see Christ. And in all the youth and uh, all the adult classes, whether it be in parenting or going through a book, we're hoping to see Christ in the gospel more clearly, because that's what we're unified on. 
That is the substance of our unity. But we're not only just unified truth. It's not just a unity of truth. The gospel does not only just affect what we believe together, but it affects how we live together. The gospel is displayed in our actions. Paul is pretty clear about his main goal in going to the church in Jerusalem. That he's out with Barnabas for 14 years planting churches and sharing the gospel to the Gentiles. He goes to the church to make sure that gospel is the same. And then immediately after they're unified in that, he's given them right hand of fellowship. He's sent out again to go share the gospel. Paul is explicitly clear about it in verses in verse 15 of chapter 1. It says, But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was, repeat, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. That his calling, he saw himself as called and set aside by God for the mission of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. If you look at uh, one of my favorite passages in, in describing uh, our salvation is how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And he talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we were following after Satan. We were like the rest of the world lost and dead. But God, in his mercy, made us alive with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Not of your own doing. Not, of work, not by works so that no one can boast. For you are God's workmanship for good, you know, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in. That's part of his description of our salvation. He saw God's power in his life, not only when he was, when his eyes were opened, not only when he understood the gospel, but when, as he continued in his life, the good works that were set before him were the same miracle that was continuing from the beginning. The work of God in his life transforming him for a purpose that this gospel would go forward. He recognized that 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 his life was not his own. <laughs> he had no option but to share the gospel because that was part of his salvation. He was called to it with purpose. He was also moved by the grace of God. He talks so clearly about the grace of God. He said that he was that as he describes his call, he says, but when he who set me apart before I was born, this is in 1.15, called me by his grace. And that's what they recognize in him in his interactions uh, with the church in Jerusalem, that it says in verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars to me, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave me the right hand of, or gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. The grace was, some, was one of the motivators of Paul to go share the gospel with. So he recognized the sovereignty of God as a motivator to go share the gospel, that it was the same gospel that had saved him, that was empowering to go share the gospel, that he recognized that he was moved by the grace of God in his life while he was a sinner, that God opened his eyes, and that he wanted to see that same grace extended to the lost. And not only that, but he says it clearly in, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, um, I'll read starting in verse 3. It says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave us himself for gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God 
and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. That the conclusion of the gospel is that glory be to God forever. Amen. That he sees the most glorious act of God as transforming the hearts of people who don't believe. And so Paul, in his action of wanting to share the gospel, he's, his, his actions are very much shaped by the gospel here as he's got this view of, of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. That's all motivated by the gospel. That's not something separate. And that's something that the brothers in Jerusalem are unified on. They're, see, their, their unity in the gospel is not just factual, but it's actually active as well. That they are unified in sharing the gospel. Because they see that Paul is doing the same thing. He's ha- he has the same calling as they do. Just to the Gentiles. He's going to the, he's going to the Gentiles, they're going to the Jews. It says in verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So they see a similar calling. They also see a similar spirit. It says, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. They see a similar mission. They see a similar power. And they see a similar flavor. They see, and when G- James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. That right hand of fellowship, I don't know what that means. Maybe that was like a secret handshake that they had in the church in Jerusalem. I just picture it as a handshake of them saying, yep, we're together. We're, we're partners to the gospel. We see that you've got the same, the same mission, the same power, and the same flavor as us. That, our, that we not only agree on the truth, but the way, what we, we, how we see the gospel continuing to play out in our lives is exactly the same. So let's do that together. It was an active participation. Our life should not just be unified in what we believe, but in how we participate in the gospel together. We, too, have the same mission. Wherever you are, God has called you to be the gospel to some. To proclaim, to, to show the glory of God in some way, shape, or form and wherever you're at. To show the grace of God, the wonders of his grace to the lost world and, and, and maybe job, family, and whatever way God has, has called you to do that. God has called us all to do that together. And we should be actively unified in doing that together. That should be the similar, we should have the similar mission in our lives, the similar spirit that empowers us, and the similar flavor of grace as we do that together. So our our unity in the gospel, the gospel shapes not only what the truth that we're unified on, but the way we live together and the relationships that we share together as well. Because as we look further on, we see that Peter was confronted because his relationships weren't showing the truth of the gospel. They weren't in step with the gospel. Why? Because he wasn't eating meals together with them. Now, put yourself in Peter's mind for a second. When you're, when he was eating with them before, he clearly assumed that they're believers, right? He had believed that he he had been eating with the believers in Antioch. He had. He had shared those meals with them. He had come up there to check out the church. He had had that unity with them before. 
There's no reason we should believe that Peter thinks that they're not saved because they're not following kosher food laws. Peter pretty clearly believes that they're saved. But when these believers come to Jerusalem, he goes away. He doesn't eat with them anymore. And he does that. Maybe, maybe we can guess why Peter would pull away. Because these Jewish brothers are coming, and they're all circumcised, and maybe it would make them uncomfortable if they saw a Jew eating with a Gentile, because I know that kosherness is kind of part of their culture, so maybe I'll just back away and just eat with them. Because he, he thought, it wasn't like he was saying they weren't believers. He was, they were all there to check out the church up there, but he just, with, we just withdraw to be kosher with you. Maybe it was just something small in his mind to withdraw but the, it has this resounding impact of just not eating. Then the whole church pulls back, and they stop eating together. And once the church pulls back, the, the Gentile believers are now feeling like, what's wrong with them? What more do we need in, for the gospel? Why, why aren't they sharing meals with us? This small assumption in Peter's mind to withdraw and not eat has this resounding impact, maybe even affecting the Lord's Supper. That it's, it's greatly affecting the way this church looks just because he's got an ulterior motive of looking good to these this circumcision party as Paul calls it. Even Barnabas, one of the leaders of the church, is led astray by his hypocrisy. That might seem like a small thing. Think about now think about Paul. How would you react if you were Paul? You know, if you saw somebody just doing something, well, it's not that big of a deal. He's just not eating with them, right? It's just a small, I mean, am I really going to make a big deal and cause a hoopla because he's not eating with them right? I mean, Peter clearly believes they're believers. I can justify that. He was eating with them last week. I know it's fine. How might you try to justify that Everything that he's doing is fine. It's really no big deal. Yeah, we disagree, but I'm not going to confront him over it. No, Paul understands that, the that your actions imply what you believe in the gospel. And that things that may be seemingly small are, are worth correcting Peter about. And he has a confrontation with him. Now, that confrontation may may make us tense up a little bit. That might seem pretty bold. Could you imagine a confrontation like that in our church where one of the leaders gets called out and says, hey, you know, what if I, what if I called Mark out right now? And like, man, you're not eating with the right people. I just need to confront you in front of everybody. You're not doing that right. Everybody would go, oh, oh, smoke. It's kind of intense. Paul is willing to go to this degree of, degree of intensity to preserve the gospel. It, remember, their unity isn't just this American unity that we might read into the passage. Their unity in the gospel is not just one that's cordial. Paul recognizes that his brother Peter stands condemned because of the way that he is letting ulterior motives impact his heart rather than the gospel. And he wants to write his brother so that he, doesn't, he no longer stands condemned. It's out of unity and love and brotherhood that, that Paul 
correct Peter. How would you respond to that if you were Peter? Would you be defensive? Would you be like, man, back off. I, I, I can give you a million reasons why I can justify it. What, why, what, do you need, what does it matter how I eat? Why don't you just eat with who you want to eat? What does it matter? It's fine. There's nothing wrong with me just sitting at a different table. Back off. Would you be defensive? Or would you allow your brother or sister in Christ to confront you with the truth of the gospel? As are, are we truly unified on the truth if we, can't, we, if we don't have the vulnerability and the relationship with one another to be confronted? And that brings up a great point. Remember, we, we're unified in the gospel uh, because it's the, the truth that we're unified on. We're unified in the action uh, actions that, of the gospel and in the same mission and we're unified in relationship with the gospel and who do you have in your life right now who would be a Paul to you if you went astray? Is there anyone close to you, uh, close enough to you in relationship that if they, they would be able to see if your actions weren't in line with the gospel? Do you have real relationships with people? How would your children view the implications of the gospel by how you eat with people and the relationships you have with people at the church? How would they think the gospel impacts the unity we have with each other by the way we do life as simple as sharing meals with one another? Would they, would they look at the way you share meals and you share life with the people in our church together and say, man, the gospel unites us and it's so, what a gift we have by being arm in arm with others, that there's no separation, but we're brothers and sisters. We're the family of God based on the fact that Christ has adopted us all. We share in that similar hope. Would they see it as really important? Would they look at your life and say, yeah, we do some similar church stuff together. We go when they're, when, when they're having stuff, but mainly we've got our life and the people at church have got their life. Or would they look at your life and say, the people who sit next to me in church are no more similar, no more related to me than the people who sit next to us on a plane. That the gospel has no implications on our relationships whatsoever other than we sit in the same room once a week. How, would the gospel, how does the gospel, how are the implications of your actions showing the gospel in your life? How is your influence showing the gospel? How are your relationships showing the how is it your actions, your mission, and everything you're doing? How does your passion for the truth for, for, like show the gospel in your life? The gospel should seep out of every pore of your life. It should shape everything we do, our whole, our whole life. And that can feel super overwhelming. When you start to look at your life, I am sure that you are convicted by ways that you are life does not line up with the gospel. And it can feel overwhelming to, to think about having to make sure every action communicates the right thing, even implies the right thing. How do we do that? How do we live a life like that? First of all, surround yourself with people who will set you back in line with the truth of the gospel. Make sure the people you are having real true unity with are people who have their hearts set on the gospel, like you do. That the relationships you have are ones that connect 
this gets you back at, too, is that the, the more you spend time with the people in your life, the more you love Jesus. Secondly, surround yourself with the gospel itself. In your daily life, preach the gospel to yourself. I mean, it's, it's the most simple application, but be in the word and be in the word not only just to find good things to do or to find nice verses to post, but be in the word to see Jesus, to see him more and more significant in your life. As you grow in maturity of believers, we need to see that gospel more and more. It's larger. The gospel is not something that as we grow in Christian maturity becomes smaller in the rearview mirror, but it becomes more grand and larger in your life. The gospel doesn't become less significant the further you get away from the day of your salvation. It becomes far and far more significant the more vast you see the work of Christ. And not only just surrounding yourself with the gospel, but the whole gospel. Remember what Paul's conclusion of this is. These Galatians had seen the gospel as what justified them. And they forgot about the implications of the gospel in so many other ways. Yes, the gospel is absolutely what justifies us. Jesus has paid for our sins. And the moment we believe in him, our sins are paid, we're set free. But that is certainly not where the gospel stops. And if our gospel-centeredness is just justification-centeredness, we're going to miss the grand implications of the gospel that is so much more expansive than just our justification. So I thought today, as we conclude, I would just walk us through the gospel, the whole gospel, and I would just list some applications that came to my mind, some ways that that would affect the way you live. So let's, let's look at the gospel. You, we were predestined by God for mercy before time began. God chose us in mercy. That means your life is not your own. That before your life ever began, before time ever began, you were set aside for God's purposes to show his glory. And that when you look, your life should look like that, that it's not your own. And that as we face different circumstances in our life, whether it be trials or whether it be joy, that we, looking at the predestination of God, can see that no matter what happens, God is working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That we can have confidence that God is in control and is leading us towards that final destination. So we are predestined, we are called that there was a moment in our lives where God spoke the truth of his gospel to us and he opened your eyes to see it as true. That's a miracle. That you, that whether it was over time or that it was in a moment you saw it as true, that God, think about this, Jesus doesn't, didn't just die on the cross, but he came back and then he showed the disciples the scars in his hands. And the wound in his side. And he said, I'm risen. And he points himself in the script, to himself in the scripture saying that all that points to him. He shows them the truth of the gospel. He not only 
saves us, but he shows us himself. The call of God is miraculous. And here's, here's a massive gospel implication, is that you and I get to be part of God's work in other people's life by being vessels of the gospel. How will they believe on whom they have not heard? So you get to be part of the gospel call in other people's lives. And if we understand and we look at that beautiful call of God, our lives should be shaped by it. We were born again. You were dead. You were made alive. That the old you is gone and it's never coming back. It's been buried. It's in the cemetery. It's done. It's six feet deep. You've got a new life. So you don't look back at that old life desiring it, but you've got a new life with your eyes and your vision set on Christ. And that, that should make us passionate a whole lot of things, but I, I think it's just simply about what we saw a couple weeks ago in baptism. How excited we should be to proclaim the truth of that. The implications of us being born again are shown clearly in the picture of baptism. If we, if we focus on the truth of, of being born again, we should be passionate about baptism. We are justified through Christ alone. So we have been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified in Christ alone. So our standard for righteousness, for ourselves and for others, is not our own. It is Christ. His righteousness and his righteousness alone. And then as we look at Christ, we can see the way he justified by giving up himself in love. That the servant's not above his master. So me as a husband, I can see that I have to love my wife like Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. That my wife looks at me and sees how Christ gave unmerited honor to those who don't deserve it. And she shows unmerited honor to me, as it says in 1 Peter 2 and 3. That children obey their parents because Jesus counted the will of the Father greater than his own in, this, in that moment. That as we look at the justification of Christ, it has ramifications on the way we live our lives. We are adopted into his family. We welcome each other as Christ and God has welcomed us. When we were orphans and enemies of God and empty-handed with nothing to give, that Christ welcomed us into our home. And we should welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us. And then we should care for the widows and the orphans. And we should give to those who we don't expect to give to us in return. Because the gospel is that we have been adopted into a family which we, and we have been given an inheritance which we have no right to. We are being sanctified. That not only was the gospel for day one, but every day we are being made more to look like Christ. That he who began a good work in us will finish it to completion. That, that uh, Christ would be firstborn among many brothers. That he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So, as we look at the implications of that and our sanctification of we should see the gospel as more great. We should see ourselves as more dependent on God. That should be reflected in our prayer life. And it should be reflect, reflected in our grace towards one another, especially as brothers and sisters. As we see each other fall, or we see each other in, in ignorance, not know uh, the, full, the full truth of the gospel, as we correct them, we should do so in grace, because God, at one time when we were still sinners, showed himself to us, and, we, and is continuing to perfect us. And so they, being a process just like you and I are being perfected as well. Finally, we will be glorified. We have a hope that is set before us that cannot be taken away. So if we're willing, we can suffer loss and we can forfeit what's precious to us. 
so we can receive that grand prize. We can, like Jesus, set our eyes, we can set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and now is seated at the right hand of God, and we are able to persevere based on this glory that we know is ahead of us. And this is not the whole list, but my hope is that just in sharing those things, your heart is stirred for how deep and how wide the gospel comes. We weep when he weeps. We, we eat what he eats. We drink the cup he drinks. Some of us may even say it's a sorrow. But the gospel doesn't dispose of us. It saves us. So let's